we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Welcome to Done By Law on 3CR 8.55am and also welcome to those listening via podcast or streaming on 3cr.org.au. Your hosts tonight are Tess, g'day Tess, and me, Sue. Um, it's just after 6pm on Tuesday the 31st of August. Uh, you're listening to content that was pre-recorded on Sunday the 29th of August. We start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the original and rightful custodians of the land we're broadcasting from. We also pay our respects to elders past and present. And we acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Tonight, we're talking about sex work and the law. Currently in Victoria, there's a review of the sex industry laws underway and decriminalisation is actually on the table. There's a really interesting history to the way sex work has been dealt with in the justice system in Victoria. And we're going to chat about this with an expert on that history. Our special guest is Barbara Minchinton. Barbara is a historian and independent researcher for several years, she collaborated with a team of archaeologists on the interpretation of artefacts from Melbourne's Little Lonsdale district. She has just published a new book called Women of Little Lon. And this book focuses on the sex workers in the eastern end of Little Lonsdale Street in Melbourne during the early 20th century. Part of that history is the law that surrounded sex work, which is interesting in the context of this upcoming decriminalisation of this industry in Victoria. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Sue. Um, Barbara, perhaps before we start talking about sex work and the law, could you tell us how you came to find yourself writing about the women of Little Lon? Well, I was working, thanks, Tess. I was working for a bunch of archaeologists who were working on material that had been dug up from the Little Long sites. There were a series of archaeological digs. And we were really looking at what kind of people were living there. And I just kept coming across more and more sex workers, which in itself was not unexpected because we knew there were a lot of sex workers living and working around there in the 19th century. But I kept coming across the things that were written about them and eventually just feeling so overwhelmed by the misogyny and the disrespect that I started collecting the women's stories and thinking they need to be told there's more to this than, than the slum um, image that they've been given. Mm. And in terms of the women's stories, what did you come to learn about, about these women who were working on Little London at the time? What kind of background did they come from? Who were they? The women came from, they were pretty much reflective of the um, 
demography of Melbourne at the time, really. They were English, Scottish, Irish. There were a lot of Irish women, which was one of the surprises for me, thinking why so many Irish people, Irish women. Um, and essentially it was a way of earning a living and a lot of the Irish women who came in were single, had no family connections here and so on. So it was about, yes, there's every shape and size and, and a lot of the family histories that I followed told me that many of them, they were earning a living. They were The thing they all had in common was that they needed to support themselves and a lot of them needed to support children as well. So that was the common element, really. And in terms of earning a living as a woman at the turn of the century, what, what advantages did sex work have perhaps compared to other industries? Well, for the kind of women that were living in Little Long, they were largely from the working class, um, I suppose you would say, although some of them had more money than that eventually. But they, their options were very limited. It was domestic service, factory work, um, shop work, that kind of thing, which they had all had very long hours in that period. It's, it's one of the things that makes me cross. We celebrate the eight-hour day for the stone workers, but no woman of that period was getting eight hours um, a day at all. And none of that work meshed in with having children. What do you do with your children if you're at a factory um, umpteen hours a day, six days a week? So they didn't have a lot of options, really. Some, the ones who had a little bit of capital to start with could start a shop. But really, sex work had a, the great advantage of being able to do it at the hours when children were asleep or um, opportunistically when children were somewhere else or, yeah, it fitted more with their lives. And we're talking about decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria at the moment, but am I right in understanding that sex work wasn't actually criminalised in, in many forms at the turn of the century? Throughout the 19th century, sex work was not technically illegal. A woman, it was not illegal for a woman to sell sex until 1891 they brought in legislation which made it a crime to solicit in the streets. But saying that it was not technically illegal is not the same as saying it was not regulated or not policed because it was policed um, and it was really policed around the notion of disorderliness. So this came into the legislation for vagrancy mainly. But so <laughs> Disorderly, those disorderly women. <laughs> <laughs> Typical. <laughs> well, of course, disorderliness was dependent on where you were standing and, and how you were, you know, how you were behaving. So for me as a white um respectable middle-class woman, if I went up to a policeman and um, swore at him, I could be charged with insulting behaviour and it might cost me five or ten pounds. But if a woman who was doing sex work, who was known to be doing sex work, went to a policeman and said exactly the same thing, she could be charged with disorderly behaviour and she could be up for 12 months in jail. So this is the other thing about that we need to understand about um, the law, that doing sex work was not illegal, 
But once a woman was seen as or labelled as a sex worker, then she was subject to a whole range of laws which weren't that I, I as a respectable white woman, was not um, subject to. So being a sex worker had a lot of ramifications. And one of the worst of those, because so many um, women got into this industry because of having children to raise, one of the worst of them was in 1864, they brought in legislation called the Neglected and Criminal Children's Act, yeah. which made it illegal for a child under 15 to live in a brothel. Oh, and the God. definition of a brothel was a house where a reputed prostitute lived. Oh. So under that law, um, a policeman could take a woman's children on the basis of her reputation as a sex worker in front of two magistrates and they could put them into an industrial school for up to seven years. Oh, that's, so, gosh, that's... So, you know, there, there are so many intersections with the way our First yeah. Nations peoples are treated. Yeah. yeah. That's a whole nother program. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. I was yeah. really reflecting on the parallels between, you know, the ap application of that disorderly yeah. kind of offence yeah. and the way that the laws in relation to public drunkenness have been applied yes. in, in Victoria even recently um, yeah. and the disproportionate way that, you know, certain groups are are arrested for these offenders, what offences rather, while others are kind of just sent home in a taxi. Yes, um, especially that idea of the the um, the way that police discretion is applied mm. and the power of that discretion, which actually doesn't seem to have changed a lot over that time. You know, the the um, the discretion that's you're talking about in those times was really about you know the police being on the streets and, and learning about um, working class women and discriminating in a really using law to discriminate oh. against them. Yeah, wow. And it's one thing you can see happening increasingly over the 19th century that in the 1850s it was more or less an accepted part of, of the frontier environment that women could do this. They could be out in the street, they could be soliciting on the street, um, and it was just, it was seen as a necessary evil. But underneath that is, is this whole world of misogyny and judgment, moral judgment, because the, the necessary was for the men, but yeah. the evil was the women. Mm. Any woman doing it was seen as morally reprehensible, but because the men wanted it, it was, it was dealt with by basically being kept out of sight. So as long as the women were quiet, they kept their houses quiet, they didn't cause a lot of trouble on the streets, they could get away with it, which is why Madame Brussels kept going for as long as she could because she kept her house very discreet and out of sight. So the whole thing is based on this bedrock of misogyny and, and um, moral judgment, which is very much against the women but in favour of the men. And actually one of the things I wanted to talk, talk about is the, the way the law was set up in the 19th century was a bit different to the way it is now and it affected the sex workers every day. 
and that is that all the, all the um, charges that could be brought against sex workers in the 19th century came into what we would now call the magistrates' courts. They were called then the police courts. Um, but at that time, the, the people who sat on the bench, the men, they were all men who <laughs> sat on the bench of the magistrates' courts or the police courts, um, they were justices of the peace by and large. So they were not legally trained. They were um, volunteers, as it were. They were upright, um, respectable men of the community. What they brought to the bench was not a knowledge of the law, but their own sense of what justice was and what was right and proper. So there was this real quite visible split, if you read the court reports, between those magistrates or those justices of the peace who fairly clearly, um, well, we know that a lot of them were clients of the sex workers. Mm. So you've got them, you bring up a sex worker in front of them and they're quite lenient and they dismiss the charges. But you've got the other side who are the church-going moralists who think that pr prostitution is a terrible thing and should be banned and should be, um, we shouldn't have it. And they would give a woman with the same evidence, they might give a 12 months jail. Mm. So you've got this whole moral sense working through the, through the police courts at that time, which sometimes it could favour women like Madame Brussels because she could actually influence the people who are on the bench. But then you've got other women who just were victims of this kind of judgment the whole way. Yeah, that's so interesting. It kind of connects to um, what's currently going on now with the, you know, um, the way that the licensing system, so bringing this into the 21st century, the way that sex work now is regulated um, in Victoria is using a licensing system which kind of criminalises some sex workers while others are allowed to work lawfully. So that's because it kind of divides sex work into the four different types of brothels, escort agencies, private and street-based sex work. And they're all treated differently, but even nevertheless, there's kind of, there's sex workers that move between these different um, parts. And, and a good example of that is um, that soliciting in public is still illegal. So talking about services and prices in the streets not allowed um, and private sex workers are not allowed to undertake their work in their own premises. It just reminds me of what you were talking about in the old days, you know. Yeah. So this forces um, the, the, the sex workers now into unfamiliar environments, you know. Like if you're a private sex worker and you can't use a space that's your own premises that you know is safe, you're forced into an unknown environment. And this is very much sort of, it's so interesting that the um, those values seem to have traced themselves through through the legal um, framework around sex workers. So, um, wow. So, it's also yeah. So, Barbara, on your based on your knowledge um, of the history and this the way this kind of um, these themes have have trace themselves sort of through are woven into the into the um the law um do you have any thoughts about the new proposed regime do you think it might yeah be, yeah yeah look 
sex work should be treated as work. You know, these people are, they're earning a living. So sex workers shouldn't be treated as criminals or victims because they're people earning a living. Mm. And I think any legislation that we have around sex work should be supported and protected or the legislation should support and protect sex workers. So it should be about things like occupational health, safety, privacy, but not about morality, which is what undermined everything in the 19th century, this sense of moral judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I'd like to see the legislation um, supporting respect for the sex workers and far less stigma. Yeah. To me, that's the bottom line. That's where we come to. It's interesting for me because um, I was thinking the other day when we were doing some research on this about the way that um, the old laws attached to um, health laws. So what was the name of the act? The um, Contagious Diseases Act. Yeah, yeah. And that somehow I, I feel like that's attached to this moral judgment as well, that, that yeah. sex workers are not respected because there's still that underlying idea of, you know, unclean um, and so on. And, um, you know, do you... Do you really think that um, the decriminalisation and uh, a new regime, how does a new regime um, combat that? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's about just engaging the community on a discussion about respect and about the fact that it is work mm-hmm. um, and that women do this or it's not just women, of course, in the now, um, but that it's done in this, for the same reason that people do anything else in, that earns them a living, that, that pays for their um, children's food and so on. It, it's about, um, it is just about respecting another human being's choices in life. Mm. And I think it is about having a community discussion about this, that understanding, I guess part of the reason I wrote the book was that I wanted to see, I wanted people to understand the stories that were behind these women's lives. People like Madame Brussels, she's treated with um, sort of this this joking sense of ridicule, really. Um, But she was a real woman with real needs and, and she was doing a job and she did some good things in the world as well. And if we can see people as human beings rather than as um, caricatures of what we what our moral judgment produces, then we've got a better chance of just treating everyone with respect. Yes, I I love that description of caricature. You know, um, a a few weeks ago we did a Done By Law program about about the way that the banking system discriminates against sex workers when they find out that's their work and stops them from getting services because somehow it's a risky industry to, you know, uh, this has got to stop. Yeah, it's yeah. like how how risky. Why is it risky? It's risky because people make those kind of judgments about it, and that's exactly it's it's one of the things that got me quite riled about the women in the nineteenth century. That the men who created the conditions that made it necessary for these women to do this kind of work were the, the ones who then condemned them for doing it. So they wanted to have it both ways. And it's, this is where the Contagious Diseases Act come in, of course, that 
Mm. It was about keeping the, the British Army and Navy clean because it wasn't the men who spread the disease, was it? It was the women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there must have been some brilliant stories that you uncovered, Barbara. Oh, look, the stories are just magic, a lot of them, but they're also heartbreaking, a lot of them. Um, one of the lovely stories about Annie Britton, who was um, one of her clients, bet her that she wouldn't walk down Burke Street wearing the, his cap and sword. So not only did she take his cap and sword and walk down Burke Street, but she sang the whole way and she smoked a cigar as she went. <laughs> oh, I love her. <laughs> but she was the one who got to the bottom of the hill and the police charged her with insulting behaviour because she was wearing the cap and sword of an army man, how insulting. Mm-hmm. And when they got her to the watch house, they, she admitted she was a woman of the town, so they changed the charge from insulting behaviour to disorderly behaviour. She got a month's jail for the prank oh, that goodness. this man had better to do. So it's that kind of story that really it makes it real to you what these women's lives were like, you know. They, yeah. But they, so many of them were feisty and funny and, and yeah. full of life and, mm. you know, singing in the streets and, yes, it just they deserve respect. Yes. Not ridicule. We all do deserve respect. And, you know, I think some one of the other things that, that I think people sort of imagine the worst case scenario with sex work, like um, sex trafficking and sex with children. And of course, this new um, um, legislative framework is not, it, all of that still remains absolutely illegal. Um, but that's where, you know, it's kind of the, the, weird extreme that people attach their brains to instead of just and and it makes them just like you were saying before caricatures these these you know weird um awful people yeah. it's what historians have come to call it moral panic ah, um, i love there that are various periods of moral panic um where people do get into these quite extreme um, frights about things, whether it so it was a moral panic that brought on the 1907 legislation. But it wasn't just about prostitution, it was also about gambling and it was about drinking. I mean, they ended up with the six o'clock swill, and you know, the, it really was this sense of we want, I can understand where it came from. People wanted a better world, mm. um, and they thought they could legislate for this better world, but. The world they were trying to legislate wasn't necessarily any better than what they had before. It sounds like what you're saying is that that decriminalisation can go a long way towards um, that sort of educative um, impact of of the law. If and the idea that these are people who, you know, are just people mm. working out their way through life at the moment using the best they can and making choices um, in our current context and they deserve more than that sort of moral um, judgment that seems to underpin um, the way the 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 um, regulation of sex work has always worked well this is what we know now yeah 
yeah. I think mm. that sense of morality has been very much to the fore. So let's hope it can change. Okay. Tess is giving me a sign saying we're out of time. <laughs> is that right, Tess? Tess is That's right. It was, it's Lucy. very. It's a hard one to end, though. It's been absolutely oh. fascinating, Barbara. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Tess. Thanks, Sue. Thank you so much for your time and the absolutely brilliant and engaging um, stories. And, look, let's hope this, this new, I, I understand the submissions for this um, law change are now closed. So mm. it's all in contemplation stage in our government. So let's hope they, they can draw on some respect. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. And that was Barbara Minchinton talking with us about sex work and the law, and taking us through some of the stories of the women of Little Lonsdale Street at the end of the nineteenth century. Barbara's book, The Women of Little Lon, is out now. And you can pick up a copy in bookstores around Melbourne or online. Thanks again, Barbara, and thank you, listeners. Stay tuned for Voice of West Papua. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter.